Well, as you can see, we are returning to our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning. In chapters 4 and 5, uh, we encounter Jesus teaching a series of, of four parables about the coming of the kingdom of God. And that was immediately followed by a series of, of four miracles attesting to the authority and power of Jesus' word. All four of those miracles presented a contrast between faith and fear. First, there were the disciples in a boat who, upon witnessing Jesus calm a storm, found themselves even more afraid than they were when the storm was raging. Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Then, immediately after that, there were the Gentile villagers across the Sea of Galilee who, upon witnessing Jesus cast out a legion of demons from a man, found themselves so afraid of Jesus that they begged Him to depart from their region. And then immediately after that, there was a woman with the bleeding disease who, upon being healed by merely reaching out to touch Jesus' garments in faith, fell before Him in fear and trembling when He insisted that she publicly identify herself. And then finally, there was Jairus, who upon hearing the news that his 12-year-old little daughter had died, was commanded by Jesus just before Jesus raised her from the dead. Jesus commanded him, do not fear, only believe. So all four accounts involve a call for faith over fear. But only the bleeding woman and Jairus actually demonstrate the presence of faith over fear. That's how chapter 5 concludes, and that's immediately followed in chapter 6, first with an amazing lack of faith from those in Jesus' hometown, and then by the account of the beheading of John the Baptist. And it's in between these accounts, the lack of faith in Nazareth and the, the beheading of John the Baptist, between those two accounts is when Jesus sends out his 12 closest disciples, two by two, to minister on his behalf. That's the main thing for us to note this morning about the sending out of the twelve. The context into which Jesus sends them is the context of amazing unbelief and danger. Because obedience to Jesus always calls for faith under fire. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. You can find it on page 40 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses of our passage aloud. Mark chapter 6. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord to you. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. Let us pray. Father, let it not be that you would marvel at our unbelief this morning. Unclog our ears that we may hear. Soften our hearts that we may believe. Invigorate our wills that we may obey. 
Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our passage begins with Jesus leaving the home of Jairus, uh, presumably up in Capernaum on the, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus had set up his home base for ministry thus far. And now he heads to his hometown of Nazareth, about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. So he goes from his home base to his hometown. From an encounter with two people of faith, an encounter with Jairus and the bleeding woman, to an encounter with people demonstrating an amazing lack of faith. He begins to teach in his home synagogue, his home church, if you will. And while they are impressed with his wisdom and his insight, his word, his word is not enough to alter their preconceived notions about who he is and who he isn't. They say, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, we know who you are, and we know your family. You're not the Messiah, you're one of us. You've not even been trained under a rabbi, and yet you presume to speak with such authority? You're just a carpenter. Who do you think you are? Where do you get the right to talk to us about repentance? Surely you're not calling us to repentance. Prior to his death, none of his siblings became his disciples. But following his resurrection from the dead, well, some, if not all, did believe, including James, who is named here. James became an apostle and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote the epistle of James, which may be the first writing of the New Testament. We don't know anything else about Joseph, named here as Joseph, which Matthew records as Joseph, just, just one letter off, two variant spellings of the same name. We don't know anything more about Joseph. We don't know anything more about Simon, named here, or, or any of Jesus' sisters. But Judas, the fourth brother named here, is believed to be the author of the letter of Jude which is not a variant spelling. The Greek name used there in Jude is identical to the Greek name used here. Just for history reasons, we've continued to call it the letter of Jude, but it's Judas, likely the one named here. It's his brother. So beyond James and Jude, we don't know much more about any of these other siblings. It refers to his mother here. It's odd to refer to Jesus as the son of Mary. That's not how you describe people in the first century. In first century Judaism, you would have described him as the son of his father, not of his mother. Because Joseph is never mentioned after the account in Luke chapter 2 of, of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy at the temple, it's believed that Joseph had died by this point in Jesus' life. But even if that's correct, I think it probably is, you would still expect him to be referred to as the son of Joseph, not the son of Mary. Most scholars believe that this was meant as some kind of an insult against Jesus and against his family, possibly because of the unique circumstances of Jesus' birth, as Mary had become pregnant before she had married Joseph. So it could be an insult. Whatever the case, the main point is that his fellow Nazarenes were certain that they already knew who Jesus was. And thus, they took offense when confronted with his word. 
Jesus responds to them, telling them that, that this is in keeping with the former prophets of God. Only in his hometown is a prophet without honor, he says. The challenge being posed to us in this text is this. Do you think you already know who Jesus is? What if your conception of Jesus is wrong? Maybe you've written him off as a myth. Or possibly as nothing more than a great moral teacher. Or maybe you accept him as a true prophet of God, but not as God himself in human flesh. Or maybe you, you do accept that he is God the Son in human flesh. Maybe you accept that, that he died on the cross for your sins, but that's really the only part of the Bible's message that you find compelling. Maybe you're impressed with the wisdom and insight of, of portions of Jesus' teaching and preaching, but the rest of his word is not enough to alter your preconceived notion about who he is. As you read about his teaching on sexuality, on marriage, on divorce, on gender roles within marriage and within a church. Maybe you find yourself saying, oh, I know Jesus. The Jesus I believe in wouldn't say that. Surely he's not calling me to repentance and change. To pick and choose which portions of Scripture to believe and to extrapolate from the portions you like by saying, the Jesus I believe in loves in this way and that way and would never fill in the blank, is to craft Jesus in your own image, according to your own imaginings of who you would like him to be. But understand this, no one who takes offense at him truly knows him. And those who do not know him will not be received by him on the last day. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Yeah, healing sickness with your hands is no big deal, right? Well, not for one who can calm a storm with a word, who can exercise a legion of demons with a word, who can heal a 12-year-old disease with the touch of his garment, and who can raise a 12-year-old daughter from the dead with a word. But no such works were performed here in his hometown of Nazareth. Why not? Does Mark mean that Jesus was incapable of performing such miracles because of their lack of faith? Well, I think Matthew's way of putting it helps to clarify. Matthew says this, Matthew 13, 58. And Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In other words, Jesus had chosen not to perform miracles where there was such an absence of faith. To reject his word is to cut yourself off from his blessing. Here again is word of warning in, in chapter 4 that we already read. Chapter 4, verse 24. He said this, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, that is, with, with the measure you use in evaluating the words of Jesus and receiving that word, with the measure you use, receiving his teaching, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Just before Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he took those who laughed at his word, and he cast them out of Jairus' house. He threw them out of his presence. 
That's what immediately precedes this passage. He was drawing a dividing line between those who believe his word and thus are welcome in his presence and those who don't believe his word. So too here, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. That is, he departed and went elsewhere with no indication that he ever returned to these people in Nazareth. As you hear his word this morning, may he not marvel at your unbelief. It's in the context of rejection and unbelief that Jesus then sends out his 12 closest disciples. He sends them out to proclaim the same message that just fell on deaf ears. Verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The 12, as they're named here, they were identified by name back in chapter 3, all 12, when it says that he appointed them to be apostles. That's how they're then referred to in verse 30 of chapter 6 when they return from this missionary journey. Uh, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. So every follower of Christ in all places at all times is charged with the task of proclaiming the gospel. What sets the apostles apart as apostles was two things. One, they were charged with frontier missions, taking Christ's message to regions that had not yet reached before. And two, they were granted the authority to cast out demons and at times in the book of Acts, the ability to, to heal sicknesses, to even raise people from the dead. It's clear that their authority comes from Jesus, right? It's, it's a derived authority and power. He alone is the king. It's his kingdom they are building, not their own. It's his message they are proclaiming, not their own. So long as they busy themselves with, with the words and the works that they have received and seen in Jesus, well, they can expect similar results that Jesus received. That is, some people will receive them and their message. Others will reject them and their message. But either way, it's not about them, right? To receive or to reject the king's messenger is to receive or reject the king himself. The same is true for us. So long as we represent him properly, so long as we busy ourselves with the words and the works that we have received and seen in Jesus, we can expect similar results. Some will receive Jesus while others will reject him. Either way, it must never be about us and thinking that people are receiving us or rejecting us. It's about him. Verse 8, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Many suspect that the bag that they are not to take with them is what is known as a beggar's bag, very common in that day. So that not only were they not to take money or provisions, they were not to beg for provisions either. They were instead to rely upon God to provide through those who received their message. There's certainly a picture here of simplicity for the sake of agility, mobility, flexibility, and there's something here for us in regard to simplicity in life. 
that we may never feel so rooted in a particular place that we're unwilling to follow the Lord's leading to uproot and go wherever He may call, whenever He may call. So simplicity, we also see urgency, urgency in spreading the word. We see humility in their reliance upon God, both for provision, but also for results. And fourthly, contentment. We see contentment in the provision and the results that God provides. Simplicity, urgency, humility, and contentment. Verse 10, he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. That is, don't bounce around looking for better accommodations while you're in a particular city. They weren't establishing a permanent residence. They were only passing through, staying just long enough to spread the word. They weren't on vacation. They were on mission. To bounce between accommodations would send the wrong signals about the seriousness and the urgency of the mission. Verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Remember, you speak not for yourself, but for the king of all creation. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Equipped with only the clothes on their back, the message entrusted to them, and the blessing that came through obedience, they went out and called people to repentance. And thus began the great process of multiplication that eventually led to us hearing Christ's message today. 7,000 miles away, so that we too may be saved as they were, and that we too may go and call people to repentance. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to go and call people to repentance. But again, the main takeaway from their first missionary journey is the context into which Jesus sends them. It's the context of amazing unbelief, as we just witnessed in Nazareth, his hometown. It's the context of great danger, as we're about to read, of the beheading of John the Baptist. As we look around at the culture that seems more hostile to the claims of Christ and to his call to repentance than ever before in American history, we must understand that this is no excuse for ceasing to likewise go out and proclaim that people should repent. We must continue to seek the multiplication of ministry that we see here, even in the face of unbelief and danger. This is a call for faith under fire. That last section, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. You'll recall that the Hebrew Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible ends in the last chapter, Malachi chapter 4, by prophesying that a new Elijah would arise and would prepare God's people for the return of God's presence to the earth. Some people were speculating here that Jesus was that Elijah. 
But Mark began his gospel there. He began his gospel by declaring that it wasn't Jesus, but John the Baptist who was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus, instead, being the return of God's presence and the start of a new exodus. Some people said he was Elijah. Some people said he was a prophet like the prophets of old. Verse 16, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Apparently, beheaded corpses were superstitiously thought to, to make for powerful and angry ghosts. It may be that Herod, fueled by a guilty conscience, thought that John's ghost was somehow empowering Jesus' miracles. Verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now this Herod, this was not Herod the Great. This wasn't the Herod the Great who had sought to to kill baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. That that Herod died shortly after that, after the birth of Jesus. This Herod is one of Herod the Great's sons, Herod Antipas. If you look at Matthew and Luke's account, you'll note that they use a more technical title, title for him. He's Herod the Tetrarch. While Mark refers to him with the, the more colloquial King Herod. He certainly fancied himself to be a king, even though he was just a tetrarch. He eventually requested that the Roman emperor grant him the title of king. Uh, it didn't go well for him after that. He was exiled. But his tetrarchy at this point, it covered Galilee up in the north to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and it covered Perea east of the, the Jordan River. And yes, he had divorced his first wife, in order to marry Herodias, convincing her to divorce her first husband, his own brother. And not only that, she was Herod's own niece, the daughter of his other brother, Aristobulus. Thus, Herod and Herodias were living in open rebellion against numerous of the laws of God. All of this was well known. But notice that John, the Baptist, he was not merely... Uh, preaching a general message of repentance for all people. Nor was John merely talking to others about the need for the king, King Herod, to repent. No, John had been calling out Herod's sin to Herod, it says. It shows us that all people everywhere must be called to repentance, regardless of the degree of power and influence they hold, regardless of whether it will cost you your head. Verse 19, And Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And Herod kept John safe. When Herod heard John, that is preaching and teaching, he was greatly perplexed. And yet, Herod heard John gladly. What does it mean that Herod feared John, who is imprisoned? Well, Matthew clarifies that that Herod feared what the crowds would do if Herod killed John. For the people recognized that John was a prophet of God. So there was a danger of putting him to death. Perhaps there was some measure of a fear of what God would do if Herod killed this holy man, this prophet. But clearly not enough of a fear of God for Herod to repent of his sins that John called out. 
or to set John free from this unjust imprisonment or to keep John alive after what happens next. Verse 21. But an opportunity came, that is for Herodias with her grudge, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, that is Herod's stepdaughter Salome, when she came in and danced, it pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, Herodias, For what should I ask? And Herodias said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet this wicked ruler had him killed as part of the entertainment at a dinner party. In verse 20, we read that, that Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man, which is the only reason that Herod hadn't satisfied his illegitimate wife's wicked demands earlier. Herod knew it was wrong. He was exceedingly sorry, it says, for the foolish and boastful vow that he had made, likely in a drunken and lustful stupor. But he was far more concerned with saving face than with doing what was right and walking in faith. This king feared losing the esteem of his own servants more than he feared being judged by his own creator. He fancied himself a king, and yet he was a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to pride. While none of us will ever find ourselves in such a unique situation, we all have and we all will find ourselves in situations where we must choose between pleasing people and pleasing God, between losing face and walking in faith. Every such decision we make matters because every such decision changes you. It changes you one way or the other. You are either hardened in your sin or you are further conformed to be like Jesus. Back in verse 20, Mark said that Herod actually enjoyed listening to John's preaching though it left him perplexed. Perhaps there are some here today who enjoy listening to spiritual discussions, but who seem unchanged by them. You're more of a spectator of spirituality than you are a participant. How well did that benefit John or Herod? Without hearing without heeding only leads to hardening. Hearing God's word without heeding God's word only leads to hardening of your heart. That's the development that we see in, in Herod's heart and life. He goes from protecting this righteous and holy man to then beheading him. 
He goes from listening to John to mocking Jesus to his face, treating Jesus with contempt as as Jesus is brought before this man by Pilate in Luke 23. The moment your heart is even the slightest bit awakened to spiritual things, the moment you find that you have an interest in the things of God, as Herod did with John when he preached, that is your moment. Brush it aside. There is no promise that it will arise again. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You have not been promised another chance. Entrust your life to Jesus. Let Him break the enslaving chains of your sin that you may be set free to do what is right, no matter what the cost. Coming on the heels of four miracles, Jesus' rejection in Nazareth and the beheading of John, they set an ominous tone at this point in Mark's gospel. If the governing authorities beheaded a righteous and holy man like John, what will they do to Jesus? Consider the, the parallels between the death of John and the coming death of Jesus. Both John and Jesus were executed by secular rulers. Both of those rulers, Herod and Pilate, did so reluctantly, caving to the pressures of those around them. Both executions came about through the scheming of others, first Herodias and then the chief priests. And both executions were followed by the disciples of the one executed, tenderly burying their leader in a tomb. John's unjust arrest and execution is clearly a preview of the unjust arrest and execution of Jesus. But unlike John, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave on the third day. For he had not suffered death on account of his own sin, but on the account of those who trust in his perfect, perfectly righteous and holy sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins and for the gift of eternal life. This is the faith that overcomes fear. This is the faith that withstands the fires of hostility and rejection as we are sent out into a context of unbelief and danger. Faith under fire is what we are called to. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, grant us the faith that overcomes all fear, the faith that withstands the fire of hostility, that breaks the chains of enslaving sin, and that goes and proclaims that people should repent. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.